we're going to actually go through Paul's epilogue in the ending of Galatians here. So I want to remain standing and read Galatians 6, and it's going to be verse 11 through 18. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I in the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Say new creation. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we're looking at this end of Galatians, the closing of the letter, which is an epilogue, Paul's epilogue, I want to read Paul's closing arguments. For everything that he's brought us in Galatians, these are his closing arguments as he finishes up this incredible letter to Galatians. A letter that was about God's grace, a letter that attacked the gospel of work, and reminded the Galatians about the gospel of faith. Amen? Now, if you've ever served on a jury or watched any type of show about some kind of jury trial, you'll probably recognize or you know that the closing arguments in that jury trial are absolutely essential. And as we've read through scripture, we, I'm sure, can recognize that any epilogue in these letters is essential. The purpose of a closing argument is to do a couple of things. Number one, that closing argument is to summarize all the themes that were highlighted during the entire duration of that trial. In this letter, I believe Paul does this really well. I think he is not just writing a simple epilogue in the closing of this, but he's closing a letter and he's closing a chapter and he's teaching all within just a few short verses. I see many themes come together as I read this section from what he writes here. And it really is quite brilliant in how Paul wraps this up. Paul knows that he needs to leave the Galatians with the most important information so that it's just lingering on the forefront of the minds of the Galatians and our minds. See, he, he highlights the importance of justification by faith versus the curse and the law. He highlights how dying to the flesh to walk in the spirit is of the utmost importance. And he highlights, of course, that living by God's grace alone is what he's calling them into. Now, the second purpose of a closing argument is that you want to guide the jury with all integrity in the verdict that you believe is true. See, Paul does this quite simply, and I would even say he does it gently compared to even some of his letters that he does write. Paul's saying, look, church, let's boil this down to one basic rule. And that basic rule is this. In Christ Jesus, nothing else matters. And you are made a new creature. Amen. And Jesus, but nothing else. See, as I start this morning, I want to break down these verses to give you a mind of understanding to to receive the deeper meaning of what persecution for the cross really looks like. And he talks about this as, I believe, the root of this epilogue is the persecution for the cross. All while, I want to warn you against the trap of the enemy, which is nothing new and we've talked about before, but it's fear and it's boasting in the flesh. So that's my goal for this morning. But before we get there, and I know Pastor Corey has already done that, but done this, but I want to remind you of what's going on in this letter. A bit of knowledge about who he's talking to and what's been taking place. So just as a reminder, 
what we have here, as we go through Galatians, almost in every chapter, Paul brings up or says something about the cross of Jesus Christ. He says it seven times throughout the entire chapter. He references the cross throughout this letter. And the simple reason is because of the false teachers known as the Judaizers. These were Jews who professed to be Christians when really they were false teachers who came into the church in Galatia telling the Gentile, non-Jewish believers that in order for them to be saved, in order for them to be Christians, they have to be circumcised and become Jewish first. That they have to keep the law of Moses and follow the dietary rules and rituals. So that's where the name comes from. They were Judaizing the Gentile believers. I also would state that these Jewish Christians were Jewish Christians. They fully trusted in Christ, but they weren't willing to let go of the old traditions. And not only that, but they were Jewish Christians who were so filled of fear of the persecution that they went so far to tell the Gentile non-Jewish believers that they couldn't be Christians unless they were circumcised only to keep the Jewish rulers and the Romans from really noticing them. See, this was a shield, a facade to keep themselves safe because they didn't want to be persecuted. So whether it was out of a malicious intent or out of fear, the act was still done. And Paul had to handle the situation. He had to stop this. So let's jump right into this. If you turn to your Bibles, let's look at verse 11. And I want to start with what I call the large letters section. Verse 11, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Why is Paul starting his epilogue with this? Why do you think he goes so far to say, look at these large letters in which I write with my own hand? Well, with different commentaries, there's several different opinions out there, and I want to cover four of those. Some say this is a typical way in which Paul ends most or all of his letters. It's a way of him showing love and adoration, affection for his churches that he has planted. That's one way. Another is that some say that it was to show the authority that this apostle writes with, showing, saying that I have authority. Look at the large letters. Or maybe it's to show the importance of what's being said. He's saying, listen to what I have to say. I do this all the time. I tell you guys, listen, meaning that the sentence that comes after is important. I want you to grasp it. So it's like Paul's in bold saying, I want you to pay attention to the last little bit of this letter that I have to tell you, right? And then others say that maybe it's because Paul is getting old and he can't quite see as well, that he has to write it out in big letters. Regardless of what, is being said, it maybe all could be just that. I mean, with the last one, he says in Galatians 4, for I bear you witness that if possible, I would, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So a lot of people say that this is the thorn in his flesh. It's his eyes that he can't quite see. But regardless, what I feel matters, and what I'm going to tell you guys today is that yes to all of it, but I really do believe Paul is saying, pay attention. That's the whole point of an epilogue. It's the whole point as you're closing out a letter that you want to summarize everything that's been said with the most important facts and leave them so that your readers remember. But he's taking it a step further and making it large letters. He's making it bold. He said, this is very important. Almost the point of, this is so important. I'm not going to even mention this again. So I want you guys to get it this time. That's how important this is. So what, how I view this epilogue is verses 12 and 13, they're a warning. And I'm going to spend most of my time this morning in verses 12 and 13. And then if you look at verses 14, 15, 16, I believe it's Paul's answer. And he does this very well whenever you look through his different letters, his epistles, that, that he always gives an answer. He gives a warning and answer. Even look at how Galatians starts. It starts with a curse, a warning of a curse, but it ends with this blessing. There's always an answer to help us grow and mature. Amen? And then in his typical fashion, he blesses those in verses 17, 18, saying, so be it. What does amen mean? So be it. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't want to mention this anymore. So be it. 
So, verse 12, persecution. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution of the cross of Christ. The fact that this is the very first sentence, right after he just got done saying, pay attention, should tell you to do what? Pay attention. This is the, this is the statement after he has said that. This is what he is driving at. Everything is held within verse 12, I believe. You see, I also think that this could be broken up into two parts in this, in this verse. Two parts that mean the same thing and they're for the same reason. He's saying all those false teachers, those Judaizers who insist that you be circumcised are recruiting you so that they can boast in their own achievement. They can boast in their flesh. They can say, hey, look at me. In other words, there's a bunch of peacocks clambering around each other. Paul shoots right to the point of declaring out that it's wrong to boast in your flesh. It's wrong to boast in your own works. Later, we're going to read how he says, none of that matters to boast in your flesh. The only thing that matters to boast in is in Jesus. Amen? And it's not just boasting or bragging, but it's drawing power from. It's what that boasting is referring to here. He's saying, I, there's nothing that you can draw from boasting in your own flesh. There's no power there. But there really is power to boast in Christ Jesus, isn't there? Every knee shall bow to the name of Jesus. Praise God. Now, the second half of this verse, and this is what I really want to highlight and why I've titled it the persecution, is because Paul's saying these people seek to avoid the persecution that comes. It's like a promise. It comes with preaching the liberating message of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, they're seeking to avoid persecution. That's fear. They're operating solely out of fear. And just like the peacocks, they're boasting on their own flesh to raise up those big tail feathers so that they can hide behind other people, hide behind their boasting so that they're not persecuted against. It's like they're holding up this shield because they're too terrified of what might happen. See, they don't only get caught up in this boasting the flesh, but they use the boasting as a shield to protect themselves from that persecution. Fear of persecution. It's a real thing. I think we've all experienced some type of fear of persecution. I believe that whenever you find persecution in any manner, no matter what it is, persecution, it is rooted from fear. Fear starts, it festers under the surface, and then that turns into persecution that then is lashed out of your mouth against somebody else. It always is rooted in fear. But what did Jesus say? We do not have a spirit of fear. We are to not fear anything. Look at the damage that was caused from fear. As we read through Galatians, look at all the damage that was caused in this church in Galatia. Do not overlook the power that fear has over these false teachers. They allow their fear to rule their relationship with Jesus, which then affects the entire church body. So in their own personal walk, they allowed fear to affect their personal relationship with Jesus, but then that affected their brothers and sisters. Do you see where I'm getting at? What fear do you allow to rule over you? I want to be tender here because I recognize that we all have some sort of fear. But I want you to recognize that that was crucified with Christ. There's no reason why you should pick that fear back up again. And I also want you to recognize that, maybe you didn't realize this before, but that fear affects this entire church body. Your fear, your personal fear affects the worship center. Your fear affects the kingdom of God. Your fear affects the advancement of the kingdom of God. But Jesus has removed that fear, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. It might sound arrogant for me just to say, get rid of that fear. But that's what the Bible says. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Jesus has taken that burden off of you and replaced it with something else. And that something else is not fear. Amen? Amen.
Because what does the Bible really say about persecution? Are we supposed to fear persecution? No. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Praise God. Matthew 5.11, Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then Matthew 5.44, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying there. He's promising you will be persecuted, but then what's he say you're supposed to do with that persecution? Fear it? Not forgive the person because of it? No, you forgive them and you pray for them. You lift them up, you love them in that persecution. Have you guys, I've, I think I'm, I've used this example before, I've mentioned it, the hiding place, Corey Tenboom. You guys have read that, that story and know the account. I love how Corey Tenboom, I'm just gonna jump right to the end and she's walking, or around the whole world, she's sharing her testimony. And in this auditorium, she's standing there after speaking and one of the guards that persecuted her walks up to her and asks for forgiveness. Can you imagine after being beaten and, and made naked and humiliated and that person that did that to you walks up to you and says, will you forgive me? I've repented to Jesus and I need to repent before you, forgive me. She said that was the hardest thing that she could ever have done. But in Christ Jesus, because she was crucified with Christ Jesus, she was able to say, yes, I forgive you. And what I'm saying is that we all have to do the same thing. Is that right? See, when you seek out scripture on persecution, you'll find verse after verse after beautiful verse covering persecution. But never once does the word of God say that you have to fear persecution or you're supposed to fear persecution or you're allowed to fear persecution. Never once do you find that. Instead, it's, it's the exact opposite. Yet these Judaizers did what Jesus said not to do. Instead of rejoicing in their persecution, they allowed the fear of persecution to cause them to become the persecutors. Does that make sense? Fear caused them to become the thing that they were scared of. That's what fear does. So I want to highlight four areas in which we see persecution. Number one, it's persecution from within the church. This has been going on forever. There's always been persecution within the church. Now what about persecution from the current culture? We're promised that one. You will have persecution of the world. Now, what about persecution from your own soul? You guys might not have realized that one, but you can have persecution from within inside you, from within your mind, within your heart. And then I've preached on it so many times, but persecution from the spiritual realm. The enemy is a master at persecution, is he not? Now, as we cover these four, I want us to look at each of these, and I want you to ask yourself, so keep these in mind, these four questions. Am I fearful of this persecution? Do I have fear of being persecuted in this manner, in the church or in the culture, in my own soul or in the spirit? <clears throat> Excuse me. Have I bowed down to this persecution? Meaning, have I given in? Have I become a chameleon and tolerated the sins of our culture out of fear of being persecuted by those who are not believers? So I have accepted it and now I bring it into the church and telling other believers that they have to do this too. That's what I mean by bowing down. You have accepted it. So that's another question. I want you to ask yourself. Another one is, am I walking victoriously through this persecution? Meaning you recognize that I am crucified with Christ. I made a new creation. So I'm victorious over this persecution. Even if I'm martyred right now, I'm okay with that. Ask yourself, are you? And then the dangerous question of, do I persecute others in this way? We have to be real with ourselves on that one. Do I impose my beliefs, my religious spirit beliefs, my persecution onto somebody else? 
So let's start with number one, persecution from within the church. There has always been strife within the church. Paul's second letter, Timothy said, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. But just because it's always been there doesn't give us permission to continue in that strife with each other. Because if we get caught up in that strife, eventually that strife turns into persecution within the church. And that's the problem that we are running into. Such as denomination versus denomination or theology versus theology or educated versus uneducated. We sadly have preachers and teachers tearing down other churches within communities, their own communities. We have viral videos tearing down spiritual leaders. The religious spirit loves persecution within the church. We see it at work in gossip and in backbiting and and, in complaining and argumentative debate with each other, which accomplishes nothing within the kingdom of God, right? What the Galatian church battled is a prime example of that religious or that legalistic persecution. We see our brothers and sisters arguing over issues of the flesh or work versus faith or over the law versus freedom of the cross. See, it's this device of the devil that he uses used then and is still using today. And I want us to be mindful of this persecution within the church. And I want us to try our best to battle that persecution and not allow it to continue within the church walls. Can we do that? I'm not accusing. I'm just saying this is a form of persecution that goes on. And we have enough going on outside the church than to allow that dividing from inside the church. And that leads me to point two. So persecution from our current culture. You guys know where I'm going to be going with this one. It's a persecution within the world. This is the type of persecution that we're promised that we're going to walk in. It's the persecution from from, uh, within our families and our friends and, and from media. It's the constant bombardment of secular beliefs, of ideologies, material belongings, the way of life that is contrary to God's written word. It's contrary to the path that he has set us on. It's that persecution that's constantly being poured upon us. It's the battle we face as we weave through the verbal and the visual persecution that is in media. It's pulling at us to accept life's temptations, the cultural sins. And for the sake of little ears, you know what I'm talking about. It's bombarding us within our 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 news medias, within social medias, trying to pull us in and then calling us hateful if we don't accept what the, what the world says. How about we just call what it is, sin, and stand for what the written word of God tells us to do. Now, the best example that I wanted to give you today is a story that's been around for a very long time. And actually, it's a children's story that we read our kids all the time. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory about the Christian walk written by John Bunyan and published in 1678. Second to the Bible, this is the most, uh, most popular and most printed story in the Christian books even today. And so I, I thought it matched, especially because it's uh, Family Sunday, to be able to read you guys a child's story. Amen to make it fun to read a kid's story. So all you kids out there, eyes on me. We get to read a picture book. Big kids. Now adults, this is not just for the kids. I really want you guys to view this as an allegory. View this as what's going on in our American culture right now. View this as something that we all go through. Even though this was published in 1678, doesn't mean it's not going on in our American culture today. Is that right? And so where I'm be starting is I'm be reading about Christian and faithful as they enter into Vanity Fair. Now, Vanity Fair is our current American culture. It's the persecution that we have going on in the world around us. Make sense? All right. So page one, we have Christian Pilgrim and his companion Faithful are traveling on the king's path when they are met by an old friend, Evangelist. Evangelist warns them of the evil town they will soon pass through, Vanity Fair, built by the enemy of the king. 
At first, Christian faithful thought Vanity Fair looked like fun. Although it was beautiful on the outside, they quickly learned it was ugly on the inside. Merchants surrounded them, trying to sell them trinkets and delicacies to the boys. They said, here we have everything pleasant to eat or wear or see. Forget your difficult journey and stay here where you can enjoy all the delights of the world. But faithful stopped them saying, turn my eyes from all this vanity. What you sell here will not satisfy, but will burn away like chaff. We seek everlasting treasure and will be on our way. See, this set the entire town in an uproar. The boys were put in jail. People made a spectacle of them, insulting them and mocking them. But Christian and faithful were kind to the children. You do not need to stay here, Faithful said. The king will welcome you to his path in his city. The boys were put on trial. Their judge, Lord Hategood, said to them, The witnesses have testified against you that you cause an uproar in our town. Is it true you don't obey the laws of our great prince, Beelzebub? Faithful answered, We have done nothing but follow what is right and true. I defy the law of your town and your wicked prince. My loyalty is to the king and his ways. The judge slammed the gavel down. Death, death, I sentence them both to death. Back in jail, Christian faithful encouraged each other with promises from the king's book. Guards came and took faithful away in chains. Christian called out, faithful, do not be afraid. They can destroy our bodies, but not our souls. I will see you in the king's celestial city. Meanwhile, a boy named Hopeful had been watching them. With the guard's stolen keys, he freed Christian from jail. Quick, he said, let's go before they come back for you. As Christian fled the vanity fair, he looked up and there was faithful. The king had sent a chariot to take him to the celestial city. I will miss you, my friend, Christian cried out. Hopeful, comforted Christian. Faithful's bravery inspired me to leave Vanity Fair. I hope I can be a friend and companion like he was on the king's path. What did we see take place in that story? That even amidst the persecution and with Faithful being martyred for his faith, his faithfulness, to the king, he was killed. But they encouraged each other. And then Hopeful saw that. He saw, here are these two boys encouraging each other, and that lifted him up to then do the same thing. We are called to do the same thing. In our own persecution, we are called to lift each other up, to edify and exhort each other. That's what I want you to glean from this child's story. From the Pilgrim's Progress, we see that we are to engage on this path to God's city together. Can we do that? Can we walk through persecution together? Build each other up? See, the persecution is never-ending. It took place in the Galatian church. It took place So much so that John Bunyan published a book in 1678 and it's taking place right now in our American culture. It's our job as brothers and sisters to stand alongside each other and encourage each other. That's what I'm calling us to do in this type of persecution. Can we do that? Now, what about the persecution of our soul? What do I mean about that? I've preached on this before. It's called the dark night of your soul. Whether you're a new believer or you're a mature believer, I believe we all battle our own inadequacies. We all battle the voices inside saying, I'm not worthy. I I don't bring anything useful to the kingdom of God. What's the point? I can't do it. It's that depressive spirit that sometimes we, we are just bogged down with, that dark cloud. It can stem from refusing to forgive yourself even though Christ has made you a new creation. St. Augustine expounds on this very well, and I'm I'm in this mode of reading books, so I'm going to be reading you what St. Augustine has to say about this. I think he says it much better than what I could ever do. He says, I probed the hidden depths of my soul and wrung a pitiful secret from it. And when I mustered them all before my eyes and my heart, 
A great storm broke within me. Somehow I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears, which now stemmed from my eyes. For I felt that I would... I felt that I was still the captive of my sins, and in misery I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end to my ugly sins at this moment? I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the singing of a child in a nearby house. Whether this was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. At this, I looked up thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open up my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book containing Paul's epistle. I seized it and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage in which my eyes fell. Not in reveling or drunkenness, not in the lust or the wantonness, not in quarrels or rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. That's Romans 13, 13. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so for an instant. As I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though a light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt dispelled. I marked the place with my finger and closed the book. You converted me to yourself so that I no longer placed any hope in this world, but stood firmly upon the rule of faith. That was written in year 348. I want us to recognize that whether you live in 2023, 1678, 348, we are all made in the image of God. And when we allow ourselves to be crucified with him, we are to forgive ourselves as well. That's what that means. So as you walk through that dark night of your soul, as you think, I don't matter, the answer is wrong. And if you find your place like he found his place, take it up and read. Take it up and read. Read the word of God and recognize that he loves you dearly and you are useful for the kingdom of God. Can we do that? We all battle tears and anguish in the clash of our own self-worth. Sometimes, listen, sometimes the greatest persecution we go through is from our own self. Sometimes the greatest persecution is caused by our own thoughts. From the wellspring in our heart, it overflows us. Does it? But what about the persecution in the spiritual realm? Let's look at this last one. I've preached on this a lot. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. Throughout our Christian walk, we need to recognize that we are at war. The enemy will try any means to derail us with our walk with Jesus. As I always say, it first starts in the spiritual and then manifests in the spiritual or in the physical second. I don't want us to overlook this type of persecution, but I also don't want us to fear it in any way. But I want us to understand that the enemy has mastered spiritual persecution over the years, and he will always use it against you. So all I have to say about this is to guard yourself daily. Amen? Amen? Yeah. It's not a, I'll do it on Monday and then on Friday. Yeah. Daily. The moment your feet hit that floor, spend some time in the word of God and guard yourself. Amen? Now, I want you to spend time in these, in thought in these, especially before we enter into communion at the end of today, that you spend some time thinking about this, asking the Lord, in what ways does the Lord need to work on me to cause growth? Do I need to repent in any ways that I've done this? Do I need to ask Jesus to remove the fear? Do, does he need to cause maturity to take place? 
So ask yourself as we continue that. And verse 13, as we continue in Paul's letter, we see that the Judaizers didn't just act out of fear of persecution, but also arrogance and boasting. Paul shares how their boasting was hollow and it was actually fake. Go back to the peacock. Verse 13 says these people were hypocrites. In Galatians, the whole chapter, he calls them that, hypocrites. We see a bunch of cowardly lions bullying their Gentile brothers and sisters into accepting a burden that they themselves were not able to bear, only so they can look important and not have anyone question them. Verse 13 says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. I think the best example was Pastor Corey's from last week with the, the backpack. I'm going to hijack that. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of like those around us who are, are chained down by that religious spirit who then come around you and instead of helping to lighten that load that you carry, they add more burdens onto you. It's like they're taking the burdens from their own backpack, you know, that, or out of the pocket in his example, and they're giving it to you of the flesh. It's extra burdens. We need to go... We need to tread lightly and make sure that we're not those who are adding burdens onto our fellow brothers and sisters. I want us to be careful because it's easy for us to take the lazy chair and just point our, point our fingers at these silly false teachers, these silly Judaizers, and say, what hypocrites are they? When in reality, at some time or another, we are who Paul was talking about in this epistle. Do you recognize that? How often have we been fooled into thinking ourselves better than those around us? Taking the proper Christian stance with our nose up in the air saying, yeah, I'm better than them, holier than thou. There's danger there. Philippians 2.3 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We are to edify and exhort one of one another. That's the whole point of walking through this persecution together. You see, fear breeds insecurity. Insecurity breeds arrogance, and arrogance breeds boasting. Do we recognize that? Let's talk about boasting. Do not be tricked to boast in the wrong things or boast from the wrong place in the heart. See, they got caught up in boasting in the law, in the flesh of others, or even in their own works, instead of boasting in the cross. That's where they got sideways. They didn't boast in the cross. John Calvin says this very well in The Most Effective Poison. Oh, how greatly we have advanced when we have learned not to be our own, not to be governed by our own reason, but to surrender our minds to God. The most effective poison to lead us to ruin is to boast in ourselves and in our own wisdom and willpower. The only escape to safety is to simply follow the guidance of the Lord. He goes on to talk about how we are to be transformed in our lives by the Holy Spirit and to fully give over our lives to him. He goes on and then says, this means that we no longer live for ourselves, but that Christ lives and reigns within us. And he references Ephesians and Galatians. He understood that the greatest boasting that ever takes place is by people about their own abilities. There's danger there. We need to make sure we don't get pulled into that trap. See, what were the Judaizers boasting about in the first place? What does it mean to be boasting in the, in the flesh of the Galatians? Well, first, they, these boasters were only interested in how they looked. Paul put it best in verse 12. He says they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. You see, they were trophy hunters. They were just out there trying to get notches in their belt. Make sure we don't chase after the same things that they were chasing. Let everything you do be done unto the Lord and not our own boasting. Second, these boasters were only interested in being liked. I mean, the whole point in being liked is that others recognize it, right? 
You want others to see you? See, they wanted to win the admiration of their fellow Jews. But Paul expresses that even this was a facade. It was fake. Them seeking this admiration from other Jews was just fake. These false teachers were only doing this to avoid persecution from those fellow Jews and from the Roman government. You see, there's no persecution being a Jew because it's a recognized religion within the Roman government where Christianity was reviled and it was persecuted against. So what better way than to place something else out in front of you so you can do your own thing over here and not get hurt? Third, these boasters were only interested in the external goodness. Look back to verse 13. Their commitment to the law was not about love for God, but a desire for, and a desire for inward change. No, their commitment to the law was about conforming outwardly to the law and then boasting and persuading others to do the same. So where, where does this leave us? Because you might be sitting there th thinking, you know, Ryan, I, I do struggle with my fear, especially when I have fear of persecution. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I, I do boast in myself and it's a struggle I have. Or I, I really pay attention to my works and I don't necessarily pay attention to the power of the cross. What's the answer? How do I, how do I proceed? Paul highlights that in these next verses. But I also want to say God has already given us the answer. And it was raised up on a standard. You see... When the Israelites complained and complained and complained in the desert to Moses, what did God send amongst them? Serpents. Because they're complaining, serpents came and, and many died from that. So they repented. It caused repentance amongst the Israelites. But those snakes still came and they came. And they complained to Moses, what do we do? So Moses went to God and he said, make a fiery serpent and raise it up on a standard. And if they are bitten, all they have to do is look upon that serpent and they will be healed. Their persecution was snake bite. And all they had to do was look on the fiery serpent and they would be healed. But did the serpents go away? No. They still walked in that persecution, but they had to keep their eye on the standard. And then Jesus comes, and he is raised up on a standard. And all we have to do is but look to him, and we are healed. Amen? But does the persecution go away? We're still going to walk through that persecution, and we have to continually look at our standard, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? See, verse 14 through 16 are the antidotes of the fear of persecution and the boasting. Now in verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What he's saying is there's nothing that I can possibly boast in except in the cross of Jesus Christ. More so, God forbids that he boasts in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. So recognize that when we boast in the flesh, we are sinning against the command of God. Because God forbids it. That's what Paul's saying here. The only boasting that... Paul was saying, the only boasting that will come from, my, from me will boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. In him I have been crucified. I have died to my old flesh, my old man. And that old man no longer dominates my life. There is no more power in my old ways. See, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul has already talked about how he has been crucified in Christ. And then he repeats it again. If you repeat something, that means it's important. He is saying that this shameful way to die, crucifixion, this shameful thing, I myself, Paul's saying, I have been crucified. Understand something that in the Roman courts that it was so taboo to even say crucifixion, they would just say the cursed tree 
death by the cursed tree. They wouldn't say crucifixion in so many words because it was so shameful. Even within their courts, it was so shameful to be crucified. But yet Paul is saying, I am crucified. Look at the humility of that. He's saying, I, my old man deserved death. The only thing that I commit is that my old man was worthy of death. And that old Paul was killed with Christ. Paul was not interested, like these Judaizers, in looking important. He is saying that those false teachers want to look important. But he's giving you something, a standard to look at and saying, but I am saying that you should boast in the cross of Christ. You shouldn't boast that you have died, that your old man has died. That is what it means to be humble and to die to pride. What I also think he's pointing out is that no longer does your old man have any power over you. No longer does the world, the persecution of the world, what the world says is right, does not have any power over you. Jesus has all the power. The cross of Christ has all the power. Not what the news says has power. Not what the world's sin says has power. The cross of Christ has power. Amen? This is truly what I desire for you to glean from this, is that the world, your flesh, the enemy has no power over you. So stop acting like you have been trampled upon, but act like a son and daughter of the Most High King, and you have risen above, you've been crucified with Christ, and nothing else matters in this life. That's what I want you to glean from this. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Now in verse 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And I'm, I have the worship team come up here as I finish with this. Be saying whether someone was crucif or crucified, circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, it's, it's truly meaningless as Christians to circumcise. It's truly meaningless to try to uncircumcise. That's what Paul says. Both are meaningless. It doesn't matter. He's saying because you're just trying to be underneath that law still. He's saying you are free. All that is gone. What really matters is the transforming power of this new creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Amen? Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What rule is he talking about? What rule? I mentioned at the beginning how he just laid out this one rule for them to remember. But when you look at verse 15, it says that in Christ, you are a new creature. And if you deleted everything that's in the middle there, like what he's saying... If you removed it because it doesn't matter, it really does say, in Christ, you're a new creature. And if you finally recognize, Paul's saying, if you finally recognize that you, when in Christ, are a new creature, then he blesses you. Then peace and mercy be upon you. Right? This is so important that Paul has made it bold for us to remember that and that's why I'm, I myself feel like I'm just up here repeating myself over and over again because I find it important. It's very easy for us in our walk to just go through life. I'm going to pick up a little bit of this garbage, put it in my soul. I'm going to pick a little bit of this garbage and put it in my soul. I'll take that and put it in my soul. And I'm going to go over here and say, hey, children, come over here. I picked up this garbage and I want to give it to you. No. We are crucified with Christ, which means we're going to walk through life and look at that stuff and say, that's just garbage and not pick it up. That's what we're called to do. But we have to be reminded of it. 
in our persecution, we need our brothers and sisters to say, hey, you're picking up too much junk. You need to repent of that and move past it. Can we do that? The old man is dead. The old ways are dead. Your old habits are dead. So much so, Jesus, when you're crucified with him and you're made whole, the father is like, what are you talking about? Why are you picking up these new things? Yeah, but Lord, this is just what I've always done. To him, these are new things you're picking up. It's new garbage. Quit picking it up. So what Paul points out in verse 16 is that God wants us to live in the light of the principles of newness in the spirit and not the oldness of the law. Whether you're persecuted against or you're trapped in boasting or you're trapped in the flesh, I want you to recognize that it all doesn't matter because you are a new creation in Christ. So give it up. And with that so boldly being preached by Paul, he concludes as he says, so shall it be. Trouble me no longer in this matter. For now, uh, from now on, let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. What Paul is saying is enough. You want to you wanna compare? You want to talk about scars on a body? He wrote to the Corinthians. He said, I have been whipped over and over and over again. I've gone through three shipwrecks. I've been adrift at sea. I have died. I've been stoned. You want to compare scars? Look at these scars. He says, even though I have these scars, I don't boast in them. I only boast in the cross of Christ. And if Paul with all those scars, with all those things that have happened to him, can say, even these don't matter. The only thing that matters is my Lord Jesus Christ. Then what's going on in our life that we can't do it? You want to compare scars, look at Paul. That's what he's saying here. And that's the beauty of what Jesus does, is he washes you white as snow, just washes all the way to where there are no scars. It's just you and Jesus.